it's Marisol Morales. Hey, it's Emily Shields. Hi, it's Andrew Sellingson, and you are listening to the Compact Nation podcast. Welcome, everybody. How are Hi. you guys doing? Marisol, you told us you are not feeling 100% today. No, what's, I'm what's feeling a little about? under the weather and then getting prepared for a massive snowstorm that's coming to Chicago this weekend. I know. I was saying I, I'm, right after this, I'm going to go get groceries and my son is out of school two hours early. So oh, that's good. At least you'll have some time to prepare. Yeah, we're we're getting ready to be trapped in the house with two young children all weekend. So if you don't hear from me on Monday, send help. <laughs> I'll be writing my dissertation. Oh, no. Okay. That's worse. Well, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. But, it, but, you know, being trapped in the house can be useful, at least in that regard. Yeah, that's true. So uh, it is my understanding that the two of you were in the very same place yesterday. You want to uh, tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Yeah, we had an awesome event here in Iowa. We had a Civic Action Planning and Implementation Institute. It was really the first time of kind of this iteration we had, Andrew, with you here, a Civic Action Plan Institute two years ago as campuses were kind of just starting to create plans and launch the planning process. Now we have 11 plans in Iowa that have been shared and several other campuses still working through the process. So we had teams and folks from um, 11 campuses across the state, some that have a plan, some that are still working on the planning process. We were able to bring them together. Marisol uh, gave some great content, but also really strong reflection questions around thinking about how to embed equity in plans. We had some, uh, we had a president, vice president of student development and a provost talked about, um, you know, just kind of strategies for engaging leaders in those processes and, and in plans and just a lot of great conversations. I, I don't know. It was a it was a really good energy. People were really excited. What did you think, Marisol? Yeah, no, I agreed. And I think it was also helpful. We had several Midwestern directors there. So Mary from Great Plains, Trina from Wisconsin, Natalie from Illinois uh, were there as well. So good energy, a lot of laughing, which is always, I think, mm -hmm. makes the, the best part of, you know, convenings and being together. So, yes, we did have fun. That's and a requirement I have. And you did or did not, and this is just for those who are regular listeners, I think they'll be on the edge of their seats with this question. D you know, did you serve walking tacos at the event? <laughs> we didn't, but we talked about walking tacos. Okay. All right. Good. That's, that's important. People, I have right. had several people who have listened to the podcast now tell me, go out of their way to tell me whether or not they are familiar with walking tacos or Frito bag pies or whatever the other version is of those. I don't think that's what they're called. That's like sacrilegious for real taco eaters everywhere. Yeah. But I think, you know, an important role we play is uh, providing community for people, reducing the sense of isolation. So there are, there are a lot of walking taco eaters out there who I'm glad we could are feeling you know, loved be, right now. Yeah. Be part of the solution for them. And I think that's, that's a powerful impact that you know, compact nation can have. So here we are. Um, speaking of open mind. Speaking of open minds. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. So maybe we should do that. <laughs> so you all might be wondering if uh, we have a topic for this episode. And we do. Uh, and as Marisol just hinted, it uh, revolves around a friend of Campus Compact, an organization called Open Mind, and uh, a kind of curriculum they have. So the, the kind of thematic area we're heading into is a question I think is on the minds of many on college campuses and elsewhere, uh, which is, you know, is it going to be possible for us to get better collectively at having conversations about important issues with people who do not already agree with us about everything significant? And, you know, I think we uh, all know a million manifestations of how we are falling short in that area, uh, both kind of collectively as a nation and also within much smaller communities, 
within families, uh, all sorts of groupings where people are coming together. Um, you know, I think the government shutdown is about a lot of different things, but part of it is about just the breakdown for the capacity for negotiation and discussion that might involve compromise at the highest level. So that's why, for me, this was a really compelling uh, area to delve into. And so to make that uh, kind of to tell, talk a little bit about that issue, we have brought on, I had a conversation with Rafi Grinberg, who is innovation director and co-founder of Open Mind. And as you'll hear, um, Open Mind is a platform uh, that basically is a kind of online course uh, that can be used in a number of ways for students and others to build their capacity for communicating across substantive differences. It draws on the work of the uh, well-known social psychologist, John Haidt, um, who's become well-known for um, a whole bunch of projects. This is one that kind of spun off from some other work uh, that, that he was doing. Many may be familiar with Heterodox Academy, which is another organization that he launched. So uh, I talked to Rafi about what Open Mind is all about, uh, why they, they created it, how it's intended to work, what they're learning about the impact, uh, and also how people can get involved. So why don't we go to that interview now? Rafi Grinberg, thank you for joining us on the Compact Nation podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. So if we could just begin maybe by giving folks an understanding of uh, why there's something called Open Mind. What are the origins of this project? How did it come to be? Yeah, well, our mission with Open Mind, long-term goal, is to depolarize America. So it's a very ambitious goal. Who knows if we'll ever get there, but I think we're making some meaningful progress. And the original idea came out of this rising problem that that all three of us co-founders were seeing, um, which is an increase in vitriol, hostility, when it comes to talking about issues that tend to divide people, especially politics, morality, religion. I think it's always been the case that these are difficult topics that tend to divide people, but the recent climate and especially some trends, including social media, um, the new generation that's now growing into college age, have contributed to what we call polarization. Um, and a lot of the theory behind Open Mind came out of our co-founder, Jonathan Haidt's work. He's a social psychology professor at New York University. He's the author of a number of books, including most recently, The Coddling of the American Mind. And we were seeing that these trends that we found disturbing were especially prevalent on college campuses. So our driving thesis was that People, whether they be students or even a lot of adults, are, have never been taught the fundamental knowledge and skills that they need in order to be more intellectually humble, more intellectually curious, able to show empathy and take perspective, all the fundamental skills of having dialogue and especially dialogue that's centered around topics that are either controversial or very important. Right? A lot of people don't like to have their most important beliefs challenged, understandably so, um, but that is a big part of the college experience and it's a big part of the adult experience. And so our driving thesis is we can equip people with that knowledge and those skills derived primarily from evidence-backed psychology. And once people know that stuff, they'll be able to disagree more productively. And so how do you distinguish between, you know, so I'm a political scientist and I was recently actually looking back at some literature that's only like 10 years old. And it was certainly true up until then that political scientists actually tended to think of kind of, for example, increasing people's partisan identities as a useful thing because it motivated them to get involved. Partisans tend to participate. People without very strong partisan views tend mm -hmm. to sit on the sidelines because it maybe just doesn't matter as much. What is the thing called polarization that you're mm -hmm. battling that's different from just disagreement or having strong views? Yeah, that's a really, really good question, especially because I, I always try to make it clear we're not telling people that they shouldn't have strong convictions. We also don't think that partisanship in and of itself is necessarily a bad thing, right? It makes sense. You want to be aligned with things you believe in and take action on behalf of those beliefs. It's the kind of polarization that we're talking about. I think the best definition is affective polarization, which means it changes the way that you perceive people you disagree with. And to put it in a nutshell, affective polarization is essentially, I dislike someone because I disagree with them. 
So I would argue partisanship is more like I have a cause I believe in. I'm very wedded to that cause. I might disagree with the people who don't support my cause, but affective polarization would be because they don't support my cause, they are stupid or they're evil or they're ignorant, or I could never be friends with them. And so we're trying to help people understand that you can still be friends people with people, even when they disagree with you. And especially because they disagree with you can lead to very um, meaningful relationships with other people, but it requires a certain element of, of trust and fundamental skill set from both parties that you're actually curious about learning the other people's about the other person's beliefs rather than just trying to persuade them all the time. So let's get into what Open Mind is as a, as a practical project and organization. What is it you do? So we develop educational tools that can be used by university and college instructors, high school teachers, organizational leaders, and even corporations as part of training. And our main tool is an online program that we developed that's very interactive. So think about like an online learning scenario you're reading, but you're also answering a lot of questions, asking questions as you go through it. And this online program is a five-step journey. So these five steps take you on a journey of understanding through a lot of um, social psychology, some elements of uh, philosophy and communication skills sprinkled in there. Um, and this journey is, is helping you get from a point where you don't necessarily know how you feel about these topics, maybe you haven't been exposed to them, but it starts with trying to understand what's in it for me. What's my motivation? What is the purpose of disagreement? Why do I stand to gain by talking with people who think differently than I do? And then teaches you about intellectual humility, the notion that um, you're wrong probably more often than you think you are and being open to that can help you learn more. We tie that to the notion of growth mindset, the idea that people's intelligence and abilities are fluid and always evolving. Um, And then we teach a lot of the moral psychology, understanding how our minds tend to process things more instinctively than we typically think they do, especially when it comes to politics and religion. We tend to make snap judgments and then go back and justify those judgments using our reasoning instead of using our reasoning to devise those judgments in the first place. And once people understand that, we teach how those judgments are devised, those intuitive ones, along certain moral lines that are called moral foundations, how some people share certain moral foundations, but there are some that are unique to different different um, belief sets or worldviews. And finally, we end this five-step journey with some practical tools or skills that you can use when you're talking to someone you disagree with to make it more constructive. And so you mentioned some different settings uh, or kind of contexts in which uh, this the kind of five-step program uh, might be undertaken. Does it does the does the content of what people are doing look different in these different settings? How do they vary one from another? Yeah, it's a really good question. So right now it varies slightly in the sense that you see different examples, different pictures, whether you're a college student or high school student or an adult in the workplace, we try to make it relevant to each of those situations. Um, but we're also in the process of just improving the program every day. Part of the benefit of the technology that we, we've developed is that it's very easy to customize and change things on an ongoing basis. So we actually collect feedback from every user who's willing to give us feedback every time they finish not only the program, but each step of the program. They say, what did you like about the step? What did you dislike? What could we improve? And every day I'm reading literally hundreds of feedback emails and almost every day making improvements to the program based on that feedback. So a little bit later, I want to ask you some questions about kind of the evidence of the impact of the work you are doing. But I want to ask some questions right now about the evidence that drove this design in the first place. So what's the kind of, what's the empirical foundation? I realize there may be a lot out there, but kind of, can you summarize some of the key pieces of evidence that suggested a design like this and those topics you just described might have the impact that you're hoping to have? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd say there's probably two sort of pieces of evidence behind it. One is the the, actual, the evidence behind the content that we're teaching that can actually lead to these outcomes. And the second is is the educational design of it. Um, so I'll actually start with the latter because that's, that's my personal background. Um, I originally started my career in management consulting, but I worked in education technology after that. And the, the world of ed tech is very sort of gung-ho about online learning, right? And it's fantastic because it's a way to scale things um, 
in previously unimaginable ways, right? Like you don't need a physical teacher teaching thousands of people all over the world. They can all be using the same online program for virtually no cost. And I find that very exciting. The downside of online learning is that it can be hard to engage people, hard to retain their interest. Um, and especially like MOOCs, massive open online courses are notoriously unsticky, meaning people tend to drop out in high rates, which led me to, to do a lot of research into like, why is that the case? What specifically causes online learning to be less sticky? Um, and a lot of it is things that you can't necessarily fix, right? Like learning to, to some extent requires human relationships. You want to have a relationship with your teacher, with the other cohort students in your classroom. But there are some things you can actually correct for and emulate the best practices of a good teacher in the classroom in an online setting. And that goes back to the interactivity I was talking about before. So we say that every with every 30 seconds of you using the program, there's some element of engagement. You're either clicking a button or answering a question or asking a question. So it's not just passive reading. It's not just passive watching or listening. It really engages you we hope in the same way that a good teacher would. Um, it also customizes and actually tailors the path that you take through the program based on the types of input that you're giving it. So if the program learns certain things about you based on how you answer certain questions, you're going to see different content. You're going to have a different path than anyone else, which sort of emulates an individualized learning environment that you could have through a relationship with another physical human being. So I would say it's definitely not perfect. It's not the same as having a teacher, but we're getting closer and closer to how good that can be. And I think that's a big part of what makes it successful and what makes users actually enjoy doing it so much rather than one of those boring online exercises like the, the sexual harassment training that everyone's forced to go through. Um, in terms of the actual content of it, a lot of our how we devise sort of what to teach people came from different studies in social psychology um, about what leads to different behavior. And one of the most interesting studies that's the foundation of, of step two in our program is the linkage between intellectual humility and growth mindset. So just to explain in a little bit more detail, because I glossed over it before, intellectual humility is the openness to being wrong and specifically the openness to being proven wrong. So you can still have convictions, but if you have intellectual humility, you might be more interested in hearing why they might be wrong. Growth mindset is the notion that people's intelligence isn't necessarily fixed, that it's growing and people's capacities and capabilities evolve over time. And there's this fascinating link between the two that if you try to engender growth mindset in people, they'll actually exhibit more intellectual humility as well. And the hypothesis behind that is that when people are less concerned with proving their intelligence, right, you believe everyone's intelligence is changing. I don't care if I look dumb for one second. It means that I'm open to saying, okay, I might be wrong. And then and you're opening to hearing more about the other side. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting that in, in some ways um, you are, it sounds like kind of in layman's terms, right? Trying to cultivate in people a set of habits that ask them to look at themselves from the outside just a little bit. To, yeah, that's a great way of putting and, it. And so that, that the idea that that might actually make a difference is both intuitively plausible. And also it's interesting that there may be empirical evidence that supports that. Mm -hmm. there, there's a, a growing body of research that we're also started recently looking into about metacognition, which is essentially the way that people think about how they think. Um, and a lot of, we've seen a lot of correlation between these different skills that people with, with better metacognitive ability have all kinds of sort of positive side effects. So just at a very practical level, um, say we take the higher education context, that's where most of our listeners are, are focused mm -hmm. in their work. Who makes the decision to work with students using Open Mind? Who's looking at the results of student work? How, how does this work in a practical way? Yeah, it's a good question. So primarily, our audience so far has come from individual instructors who are professors or lecturers um, who want to make Open Mind part of their curriculum for the semester. And so what they'll typically do is they'll assign the online program to their students as homework. And then after the students complete it, when they come to class, they'll, they'll use our um, workshop facilitation guide. So they'll actually facilitate a workshop where students are having dialogues with each other um, that follow a sort of structure that gets them to practice what they learned in the online program. And so we've had about 300 and oh, more than 350 um, individual college courses who have used Open Mind as part of their curricula so far. But what's also exciting is that there are a number of universities that are interested in making this part of essentially mandatory training for all freshmen, right? The idea that before you come to campus, 
campus, you need the sexual harassment training. You know, I, I, I made a dig on that earlier because people tend to find it boring and rote, but it's, it's obviously important um, as is training about like alcohol safety and all things people have to go through. Um, and one of the other trainings that people are finding equally important is how to have civil discourse, how to have constructive disagreement. It's an essential part of being a university student and, and being open to new inquiry. Um, and so there have been two universities so far that have implemented Open Mind as part of the curriculum for freshman seminars that all freshmen will take. So at some point during your first semester on campus, everyone is going to go through Open Mind together. And that's what we're most excited about going forward, because we believe that the effects are really amplified when they're done in a community setting. And the reason for that is, is kind of funny. Like when I first told my brother that I was working on Open Mind, um, I told him about the kinds of things that we teach. And he said, oh, that stuff is so important. I really wish everyone else would learn it. Not, you know, I wish I would learn it. It's like, I'm not the problem. Everyone else is the problem. And actually, that tends to be how almost everyone feels about this. <laughs> so when you're doing it as part of a community, you know that everyone on your campus has been through the same training. That's no longer an excuse, right? It's like, Everyone has been uh, now understands the importance of intellectual humility. Everyone now has at least the knowledge about these skills, how to communicate effectively. Um, and so it creates this shared understanding that this, that this is a value we all have in common. It creates social norms that begin to self-reinforce as more and more people adopt them. Um, and also it creates a shared language that people have. So what's really cool is that we've, we've heard, talked to a lot of the professors who have taught open mind in their classes, and we've heard that the students start using these psychological terms that we teach. So we use this metaphor of how the mind is divided between a rider and an elephant. We talk about the moral foundations. We use that term intellectual humility. And the students start referencing those terms in their speech, be like, oh, that was my elephant reacting. Or, oh, I see you're using this moral foundation. And having this, this language with which to even talk about disagreement from sort of a higher level helps people do what you were saying, which is step a little bit outside of themselves, view themselves from another angle um, and how the conversation is going. I, I was reminded, uh, you know, there's the old line. I don't actually know whose joke it was, but, you know, enough about me. What do you think of me? And I feel like <laughs> that's the intellectual humility thing. It's like if only everybody else were more intellectually humble, it would be easier. We wouldn't argue so much. They would just recognize I was exactly. right about things. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, trying to change that dynamic in a group. I can. Yes, that makes yeah. sense. And when I when I do some of this training in person, I mean, there are certain cases where I, I will do in-person training um, for groups to supplement the online training or instead of it. And that's typically the most frequent question I get, right? Is it's like, okay, we've learned all this, but what about everyone else? And so my first answer is what we just talked about, right? It's helpful if everyone in your community is going through the same um, learning. But the other part of it is, you know, you can't control other people. The only person you can control, even to some extent, is yourself. And so even if no one else is doing this stuff, at least working on yourself, um, hopefully you'll see benefits. And even if other people aren't cooperating, these skills that we're teaching, some of them even come from cognitive behavioral therapy. They're known to actually make people more balanced, rational, logical thinkers, and even improve people's own happiness. So it's just a fundamental skill set that going back to the very beginning, right, we believe that everyone should learn this. And the fact that people aren't learning it, um, whether in high school or in college, I think is a gap in the curriculum that we're trying to fill in. So before uh, asking you a little bit about, again, your kind of uh, the, the results that you've seen mm -hmm. and the evidence for it, are there approaches out there that others are taking to teaching civil discourse at ever, whatever it is, that, that you believe are misdirected? In other words, presumably you have an approach, you have evidence for it, you are seeing results, you have reasons you think this is the right way to do this work. And I realize this is in the context of a discussion about intellectual humility. At the <laughs> same time, do, do you think there are approaches people are taking that just lack an empirical foundation and they mean well, but they're headed down a misguided path? Yeah, it's a really good question and definitely walking on eggshells here, but that's what we specialize in. So I will be preface this by saying I could be totally wrong about all of it, but I still have some convictions here. And so I'll try to express those. Um, so I think my first conviction is, is about the online learning. Like I believe that it is an incredibly powerful tool if you do it right. And so where I see some other people with positive intentions going wrong is kind of to one extreme or the other, meaning they're only open to doing in-person learning. And they're saying every single time that we're teaching people dialogue skills, it has has to be face to face. Um, I have to be there. Like another equally qualified teacher or facilitator has to be there. And that's great, right? For the people who are in attendance, but it just limits the number of people that you're going to be able to reach because you're limited by your resources in the long term. And then the other extreme is to say, okay, we're going to do everything online in a more traditional format. Like we're just going to record videos or it's going to be purely audio or it's going to be purely reading. And we just know from the evidence and online learning that it doesn't work as well. Um, and I wish people would be sort of more open to the innovations and in education technology of how to make that online learning more engaging. 
So that that's sort of from the learning design standpoint. That's why you know I think I hope we've struck this this right balance and right approach to doing it at least for now. Um, and then in terms of the actual you know content that we're teaching, I think there are so many different people and groups in the space who are all doing really good things that complement each other. So I I honestly don't think that just open mind in of itself. It's, if that's the only discourse or dialogue related training you've ever had in your life is necessarily going to be effective, right? It works in tandem with other things. And, and the, the gap that we saw in the space that we were trying to fill in was around what we call fundamental knowledge and skills, primarily derived from psychology. So fundamental knowledge of how our minds work, how our, how we tend to react to disagreement, how other people tend to react, where morality comes from in the first place um, is all stuff that, that Again, not everyone misses, but but people tend to miss um, on the whole that we're trying to fill in. So let's get into um, and I'm interested to learn about what you're learning about what's working in the project. And one particular question kind of in that uh, that seems like it would complicate it is, as you mentioned, if you're constantly adjusting the program, that must make it challenging to assess the impact of what you're doing as you go. But but that that's just a thought that popped into my head as we were talking. So maybe we'll get into that. But yeah. what is the evidence? What is what are you, is your own assessment of the impact of the work on students? What's it showing? Yeah. So it's a really good question. That's something that we care a lot about. I'll just preface it by saying like, um, you know, one of Jonathan, one of the co-founders obviously is, is an academic and he's a researcher, um, by training. Also, we have a full-time person on our team. Who's our research director, a professor named Matt Motil, who's essentially dedicated to doing this full-time. And it's something that we really care about because we want to know if open mind is actually working, right? If it's not working, we want to change our approach and do something that actually works. It's not enough for us to say, this feels right, this feels good, therefore it's probably good. That's sort of the opposite um, of what we believe. And thankfully, so far, the evidence we've been collecting is very promising. It, it, it at least has shown us that we're pointed in the right direction. So I don't think we necessarily have enough to be totally conclusive, like open mind is the be all and end all, um, but it's enough to say, we're definitely on the right track. It's definitely working so far. And so here, here's, I'll, I'll take you through sort of what we measure. Um, we devised an assessment that we give people both before and after they complete the program. And the assessment has between 15 and 20 questions that are derived from the literature on different psychological constructs, meaning um, one of the constructs is intellectual humility. One of them is perspective taking, which is a component of empathy. One of them is affective polarization, where we talked about disliking people or distancing yourself from them just because they disagree with you. And so we measure all those things through asking people questions. And we ask them the same questions after they finish the program. We can see, is there a difference? And so far, our results have shown that the difference um, is, is significant enough to be uh, noticeable. And then what we actually start doing is saying, okay, it's great that there's a difference as soon as they finish the program, but maybe it's just because they just finished the program, they're on this high, and none of these things sort of stick or last. So what's happening later? And so we actually added a three-week follow-up assessment where we asked the same questions three weeks later. And what our data so far has shown is that three weeks later, along almost every construct that we analyze, so not with the exception of one or two of them, the effects either remain or even increase over time. So there's still a lot of work to be done, right? We want to know, does it last longer than three weeks? Right now, we pushed out the assessment to four weeks. Um, but in the future, we want to measure, you know, two months later, six months later, five years later, the ultimate goal is to track this um, for as long as we can and see how long do these effects last. Um, and the second sort of area of research that we're expanding into is beyond just asking people questions where they're sort of self-reporting, because that's obviously prone to all kinds of biases. We actually want to see, are they exhibiting the different traits that we're asking about? And so we've devised a number of um, tasks, we call them behavioral tasks, to see how do people act in a certain situation. So I'll give you an example of one of these tasks. We show people um, fictitious social media posts, right, that, that we, we've created on a, on a scale from sort of like mild to extreme and extremely polarizing. And so then we ask people, what would you do when you see this post? Would you do nothing? Would you comment? Would you share it? Would you um, unfollow the person who shared it with you? And then we, we ask, we show people those same posts again after they finish the program. We see, is there a difference in the actual behavior that they would take in this case on social media? So let's let's get into um, some of the things that that might concern somebody about kind of this approach overall. And I'm just interested to hear kind of how you think about them. So, for example, I could imagine somebody saying, um, look, we um, 
the, the world we live in, we actually need plenty of outrage. Like we had a member of Congress the other day suggest that white supremacy was a, a pretty good idea and he couldn't understand why people were so upset about it. And so the, the idea that what we need to do is teach people to kind of step back and be more rational, etc., just isn't realistic in the face of rising levels of hate crimes in the country, rising levels of, of other kinds of hate speech incidents, etc. You know, we have many, many people in the country who are under assault and suggesting that what they need to do is kind of calm down, back off and be civil on, in the face of that assault is just kind of off the mark. So what, what are your thoughts about that? Mm-hmm. That's a really, really good question and a very difficult one, too. I think it's people are always trying to find this balance between two different, I call them two different mindsets, right? There's a scholar mindset and the activist mindset. So in the scholar mindset, you're always trying to gather more information to know if you're right. You know, that that's when you're really intellectually humble saying, I could be wrong. I need to talk to more people. I need to read more. I need to find out what's actually true, seeking the truth. And then the activist mindset is, okay, I'm reasonably certain that this is true. It's not enough to just know that. I need to like do something about it, live my life in a way that's in accordance with my values or take action for a cause that I believe in. And I don't think we believe that any one mindset is right and the other is wrong. It's, it's a constant balance between the two. And what we're ultimately trying to do is help people understand when to take that shift from the scholar mindset to the activist mindset. When do you feel like you've known enough or you've talked to enough people? And the answer is obviously different for every single person, for every single dimension or set of beliefs um, about when that transition is appropriate. But the number one insight that I think we try to convey that people come away with is that we are naturally programmed to be in the activist mindset more often than we really should be. We're naturally programmed just by by dint of of, um, our evolutionary design to be outraged more than we really should be. And in order to understand why, I mean, that's where you have to bring in some of the psychology, right? But to understand the processes that that happen in our mind when we're confronted with beliefs that we disagree with, our first instinct is to feel outrage or to to vehemently disagree and then justify our disagreement through all kinds of contrived reasons. Um, And so if you understand that this is how we're predisposed, this is how we're programmed, then you can start to notice these things happening in your head and just question them. And when I say question them, I don't always mean that the result of the questioning is going to be like, okay, I shouldn't be angry or, okay, I guess they were right. Um, Maybe in the end you come out and you realize, okay, this really is bad. So to use your example, right, you think, okay, I felt outraged when I heard this congressman say these these terrible racist things. Is that outrage justified? And at least you can take a step back and think, okay, this is what he said. This is what it means. This is how it compares to all my other set of beliefs, to the evidence that I have. And yeah, they were really bad. I should be outraged versus something that that we are seeing all too commonly, which is, you know, a, a wild statement, like every Republican is a white supremacist or Every Democrat is ultimately a socialist or a communist, right? Those kinds of things that people tend to believe are the result of of these processes happening going unquestioned. And I think the the answer to this ties really well to another sort of equally challenging question from before um, about being humble versus having convictions of like, we think convictions are important. We don't think partisanship is inherently a bad thing. But any beliefs or assumptions that you have that have never been questioned, never been tested, aren't really beliefs, right? They're just assumptions that have never been tested. And you have to go through this process of questioning them, asking where's the evidence, and most importantly, talking to people you disagree with who actually believe those other things in order to understand why you disagree and why you have those convictions. I think echo chambers is a really good example, right? Of people increasingly being isolated, whether physically or online, um, from people holding poison viewpoints over time, it's really too easy to build a caricature of those viewpoints and to say, oh, this is what everyone from the other side of the aisle thinks. And you've never actually talked to someone from that side of the aisle, or at least haven't done so recently and asked them what they think. And you're building straw man arguments instead of steel man arguments. One thing that, that jumped out at me, so if it's true that we are sort of oriented toward the activist mindset, kind of that's the default position, it, it might seem odd that that so few Americans and people just in general are actually actively engaged in politics at any at any particular time. And so I think one interesting thing, too, I mean, that I'd be just interested in your thoughts on is at this moment when we are all decrying greater and greater polarization. And I agree with you, the evidence on that is very compelling, etc. It is also true that, for example, we just saw record youth turnout in a midterm election, something we generally think of as a good thing 
for young people to take the time to figure out how to do it and overcome barriers and get out and vote. And so are, how sure should we be that that polarization is a worry in this way? Is there a trade-off? Is the is it that if we depolarize people, we're also going to de activate them in ways that also are not good for our democracy? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, And I guess I'll start by saying something a little controversial, which is even really bad things can sometimes have positive side effects, right? So maybe we, we agree that polarization or at least this type of polarization that we've been describing is a bad thing. And one positive side effect is it motivates people to go out and vote. Um, you know, but I can give you know plenty of controversial examples of things that are really terrible, right? But that had some slight positive benefits. Um, you know, we might think global warming is terrible, but at least it's a little bit warmer in the summer, and we can go to the beach. So you wouldn't say that's a reason that we should have more global warming. And what I would say also about voting specifically, right, is as I think part again going to be a little bit controversial, but what I think is a great unstated assumption that a lot of people have when they say voter turnout is a good thing is because you think that people are voting um, for the right reasons, they're voting after having thought through the ballot and the importance of the questions and what they mean and their implications. And if people are voting that way, that's fantastic, right? But if people are driven to the polls through pure outrage and it's unquestioned outrage, right, that they haven't really taken the time to think like, is this even what I actually believe or is it just how everyone around me is voting, everyone on my campus or everyone my family or my parents are voting? Um, then it isn't necessarily a good thing. And so I think that that civic action for the right reasons is almost always a good thing. Um, But if it's for the wrong reasons, it can be just as as harmful. So I'm persuaded by that, by the way. Uh, So I I do (laughs) want to see more people vote. I also want to see them vote based on good information, based on thoughtful engagement with views that they didn't hold to begin with, uh, and then say, yeah, this is what I think at this moment, the best right. best way of moving forward. And I think uh, it's worth saying, right? Like, I'm, I'm not saying people necessarily need to change their minds. You know, the benefit of talking to people who disagree with, questioning your assumptions, understanding all the psychology, isn't necessarily that you're going to vote differently from how you would have before you went on this journey, this five-step journey. Um, but it is that now you, now you understand why you're doing it. It comes from a place of real evidence or understanding rather than just a place of, of instinct and emotion. So, Rafi, if people on campuses want to uh, get involved with Open Mind and maybe bring it to, to their course or their uh, first year orientation or other settings, what should they do? Yeah, I like that question a lot. Um, so I would say the main thing is um, if you're part of a student group or student organization, you're welcome to use Open Mind and encourage your other group members to do it just for your own edification or for the edification of your friends or your group. Um, but we're always interested in getting more professors to incorporate Open Mind into their curricula. And we're extremely interested in getting more campuses to have Open Mind be part of some kind of freshman orientation or freshman seminar, something that everyone would engage in together as a community. And so if you're active on campus um, and you're interested in helping bring Open Mind to your campus, definitely get in touch with me. I'd say the first step is check out our website site, see what you think of it for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Don't trust only this podcast. Decide for yourself. But if it's something you're interested in, reach out to me. Um, I'm sure you'll include my email address, but it's Rafi, R-A-F-F-I, at openmindplatform.org. And I'd love to hear from you. And the URL for the website is also openmindplatform.org because there's, yes. there's other things that use the words open mind out yes. there in the world. But <laughs> that's the one you're looking for, openmindplatform.org. Um, and yes, we will uh, put links to all this in our uh, on the show page so people can find that there. Uh, well, I just want to thank you for the work you're doing um, and for joining us on the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. We're, we're also big fans of Campus Compact. Um, we're generally in favor of civic discourse, civic action, and I'm glad that our missions are so aligned. I'm glad that everyone had a chance to hear about this and looking forward to, to hearing from some of the listeners. Emily, it is my understanding that you went and played around a little bit with Open Mind. So tell us, tell us about that and, and how it all worked and how it seemed to you. Yeah, well, I listened to your interview yesterday. So last night worked through four and a half of the steps. I wouldn't say I got to the very, very end, but um, it was really interesting. I think that it is very interactive. So I think that they've done a really good job of 
that like it moves along and there's not a lot of text and that kind of thing. It was several concepts, which no surprise, because this is the work we do. I'm familiar with, but the, you know, that he referenced the elephant and the rider and this concept that like the way you initially want to react to things is this elephant and the, the rider is your more like rational consciousness and, you know, you think that's who's in control, but the elephant is like a six ton animal and is going to lead the charge essentially. And, and um, that's why you react sometimes in ways that are sort of more emotional and rooted in your values and morals and that kind of thing. And not necessarily this higher rational sense. And I think that's a really important concept for us all to just like give, give ourselves some um, credit. I don't know what the right word is to, you know, just to, to realize that even if we know how discourse should happen, there's this big elephant inside of us getting in the way of that. And that's with everybody. And so like, it's okay that that's not always your initial reaction. It's kind of about um, working on it and building those new neural pathways. So I thought that was all really interesting and it definitely gave me some new ideas. Marisol, what were some of your thoughts? I mean, I liked um, the idea of of open minds and um, sort of the use and introduction to like freshman classes as a tool for like before they begin um, their time at the university, especially in this time. Uh, But for me, I think the biggest thing was around the intellectual humility piece and, you know, just understanding that we can be wrong and and listening to that and what it takes. And I think that, um, you know, the piece about like ego getting in the way and that when you are um, like someone who practices intellectual humility, like you have that space to kind of hold that tension of both your own sort of uh, values and and belief systems, but with the openness to uh, understand that it, that others have something different to, to offer you and how, and how you understand yours, but that you can be wrong. So it actually reminded me a lot of you, Andrew, uh, in terms of like <laughs> some of our interactions and when I like uh, share my opinions and like I think you're a good balance of, of uh, that openness to sort of hear hear other sides and, uh, and change your mind. So. Yeah. Well, part of that is that I've had ample evidence throughout my life that I can be wrong. So I, I don't um, have any difficulty understanding yeah. that concept. I like that concept a lot, too. And I think that speaks a lot to what we need to also model in higher education. So I like the idea of asking students to go through this. But I think sometimes we talk about things like this as though it's just like, well, it's just the students who need to work on this. Like, no, clearly lots of people in higher education have a lot to work to do in terms of being able to work across different and model that. And I think that's that's challenging. I mean, if your role is a professor in the classroom, the the traditional model of that is that you are not wrong, that you are the expert, right? So to be able to take a step back and model that humility while teaching students this, I think isn't easy to do, but I think it's really important because it's just because it's not going to ring true, right? If you in your classroom send your students, have your students do open mind as a side project and then don't ever model that you're ever wrong or any level of intellectual humility, the disconnect is just going to mean I think that it doesn't stick for them. It's interesting. It makes me well, so two very different thoughts that just kind of popped up. One is a thing that I've just noticed is that some of the the best researchers, the most creative and innovative researchers will tell you that they got some of their best ideas for directions in research from their students and that they came because the students recognized some presuppositions that all the researchers were making that were not actually justified. And once they pointed it out, you know, then the professor was like, oh my gosh, it's true. We've all been assuming X. There's no real reason to assume that. Let's go test it. And they they find new things that way. There's a whole uh, sort of body of research on tolerance in political science and political psychology that kind of emerged out of a faculty member who I got to TA for at Minnesota, who one of his students was just like, all of you people are assuming this thing that there's no real reason for. And he recognized it was true. And I think my only point about this is, 
being a great teacher is partly being able to recognize when you actually don't have the answers and show that to your students. And it also makes you a better researcher. And if you know, you can get those things going. My flip side thought I had was so. You know, I was thinking about this from the perspective, for example, if we're familiar with the research on stereotype threat, right? So there are a lot of students on college campuses who are not walking around with the problem that they think they're always right. They're walking around with a fear that they're never right and that their ideas are never good enough. And it doesn't, I mean, I don't know that there's any harm in introducing them to ideas about intellectual humility, whatever, but it does seem to begin from a set of assumptions about how people approach questions and the the idea that we all have certainty about these things when I think many of our students are keenly aware that either that they don't know a lot about the world or they worry that they don't even know enough or that their peers know more than they do. And I, I was just wondering about how those things fit together. I'd be, yeah. So you make a really good point because I think I feel like the audience for having, you know, done most of the five steps, the audience is people who have strongly held opinions. That is really how I took away. And cause I do. Right. So a lot of it resonated with me and that seemed to be what it was targeted towards. We were just talking yesterday about how much it is the case that young people don't vote because they don't have that certainty about opinions and they're not totally sure where to get good information. So they don't feel like their voting would be informed. So they just kind of don't do it. Right. So it doesn't. And the problem we have is that the only people engaging in conversation are the ones with the most strongly held opinions. Right. So these people in the middle who maybe are just kind of like, I don't know what I think about that. Let's talk. Just opt out because it seems like everybody else already knows what they think. And I don't know how we address that. Well, it's interesting because, you know, obviously, um, Right. None of us believe sort of one thing is going to be a panacea. So it may be that in addition to I mean, I think that the point you're making about it's it's always true that the people who talk the loudest are the people who are most polarized for a bunch of reasons. And if we think that that represents everybody's views, we're making giant mistakes. And I think there's a lot of evidence about this, about, you know, public opinion in the United States on many issues is much less polarized than the kind of public debate about those same issues. So maybe part of this is, on the one hand, to kind of bring down the, the heat coming from those who really are dug in. At the same time, thinking about how to work on opening up greater space in the dialogue for people whose voices may be excluded because they're not itching to get in in the same way. Because I think that's what happens in a lot of actual classes, right? There's a few students on each side of some question. They go at it and everybody else sits silently. And they probably have a lot of ideas about those issues, but they're not dug into an opinion. And so they end up just sitting out the discussion and everybody loses out on their thoughts, their reflections. And again, I think there's some biases, systematic biases to who those students are, right? So students who come in with more family educational background, more access to uh, the things that give you confidence in your opinions, et cetera, are likely to dominate. And those who have reasons why they are constantly being caused to question themselves are likely to be quieter in those contexts. And that means that the discussion ends up reflecting, you know, there, it's, it's skewed toward a set of concerns and it excludes uh, a set of voices. Hmm. I mean, I guess in some ways what it made me kind of think about is like adultism and the setting in of the ego and the strongly held, right, um, belief systems that are hard to to leave. On the other hand, it's also, you know, um, oftentimes the, the time to delve into some of these topics and, and know more uh, uh, about them or... Um, is also a function of the privilege of time to do that, right? So that, you know, if folks are working all the time and are taking care of family and how much do you have to, you know, actually find out about what's what's happening um, in, in your community and the 
the space around sort of neighbor to neighbor contact has been minimized in our communities over the years. And so who gets displaced or uh, disempowered, you know, by, by those um, things that impact our ability to even participate in civic life to extent that we have strongly held opinions. Um, right. And but, but partially that's always been by design in our country that there are people who don't have the time and energy and access to education and resources to participate. And that's why I have an issue with the belief that, listen, I think everybody should vote. And honestly, I don't, even if they're not informed, whatever it is, you know, and whatever it is you think you should vote, because I I think every time we start saying, well, but do we really want people to vote if they don't know a whole lot and they're just sort of reacting? There's a specific subset of people that are held back by that and get that get that message and then feel like, well, I don't know enough, so I'm not going to vote. And all of this is a this cycle that keeps certain people out of the system. That's why it's always been my belief that um, everyone voting is a good thing. As many people as possible, higher voter turnout is a good thing, regardless of how informed people are, because hopefully that'll change over time. They'll start to be able to pay more attention, things like that. I mean, I, I think everybody should vote, too, but I think that there is uh, room for us to um like create the opportunities for for people to be informed in real ways that it's not just about getting their bodies to to the polling places, but it's actually their minds and and their hearts and something that that they're connected and and concerned to. So, uh, you know, that's why we see the absentee ballot mess that we do in in, in some places, because it's, you know, just send me your your vote in the way of asked you to, to do that. Um, but we make it really complicated and we discourage people's participation. You know, how much of, um, you know, our news or um, is is set around some of the, the candidates or, you know, one of the things I appreciate about living in California was that, you know, for every candidate that was on the ballot where you lived, like you got this booklet with their platform and you could go through that booklet and you got it way ahead of time. I didn't have any of that in, in Illinois. So we don't know all of the, the candidates unless, you know, you have the actual time and ability. And that's a form of, of privilege in this capitalist system that we work in. So um, to me, it's more than just bodies to, to vote. Yeah, no, and I, I, you know, one thing I would say, I really appreciated um, sort of Rafi and his colleagues having a focus on saying we want participation and we want that participation to be grounded in convictions that you hold and also for you to build confidence that those convictions are based on the best information you can get your hands on. Um, So, you know, again, I think we I'd be interested to see how this plays out for different groups of students. But I think the idea of testing this and the fact that they have a kind of learning culture, uh, which Rafi described, I think is really important that if if they I hope they're looking to ask that question about how is this affecting different groups of students, not a topic we got into. But based on what Rafi said, when he hears this recording, you know, then he'll uh, he'll get a, get to work on thinking about how to incorporate that into their assessment. So again, in our show notes, we will have links to uh, the uh, openmindplatform.org. You can go and check it out. Um, as Rafi said, you can get straight in touch with him if you'd like to. Uh, and we'd certainly be interested in hearing from you if you've had experience using Open Mind uh, in a course that you're teaching or in uh, some kind of program that you've run with students or others uh, on your campus or in your community. So thanks to Rafi for joining the conversation. Thank you, Emily and Marisol, for your thoughts. And thanks to everybody for listening to the Compact Nation podcast. We would love to hear from you. You can send your thoughts and ideas about the podcast to podcast at compact.org. You can tweet at the hashtag Compact Nation Pod. And we would love it if you would rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. Thank you. Nation podcast is produced by Molly Leeper, communications manager for Campus Compact. 
Campus Compact is based in Boston, Massachusetts, and has over a thousand member colleges and universities across the country and beyond. If you want to learn more about Campus Compact, visit us at compact.org. You can send your comments, questions, and show ideas to podcast at compact.org or find us on social media with hashtag compactnationpod or find us on social media with hashtag compactnationpod. You can find our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and tell your friends.